0: one bam look at that yeah episode 425 maybe of eight to the show and we're traveling around the world we got uh <laughs> me in new york now ali in uh kuwait and vidya yeah. in dubai uh vidya can you please introduce yourself
1: so sure. i am um i'm vidya i'm a south asian well I'm I'm saying South Asian because that's part of what I do now but I'm essentially a food writer and editor. I'm the South Asia editor for Whetstone Media which is an American food media company and the currently the editor-in-chief of a very newly launched magazine called Rasa which is all about South Asian foodways. So that's essentially me and I live in Dubai with my husband and my dog. I hope he won't walk into the frame but...
2: Um, if he does we get to say hello if he doesn't that's unfortunate for us but yeah welcome to the show so uh what got you into food writing
1: um actually it was purely circumstance it was completely by accident i've been a journalist for many many years and in 2011 when i'd already been working in india for quite some time i got the opportunity to be part of the team that launched bbc good food magazine in india Um, I had never done food writing in any capacity before that and in fact at the time I really wanted to be a travel writer but you know it was just an opportunity that I couldn't pass so I kind of embraced it and decided to see where we'd go because it was an international food magazine launching in India for the first time and I learned I mean I, I started with good food it was super intense but very 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 quickly into uh my role there, I realized that I, you know, that it, it was such a natural fit for me in that I probably always, I have always loved food. I had just never considered writing about it. And <laughs> this was the perfect opportunity to mm-hmm. find um, an outlet for something that I've always liked doing. So yeah, that's how that came to be.
0: Oh, wow. And um, when you start, like how did it start off, right? So you, um, you like yes. food. <laughs> and um yes. how did you start writing about it like what what was the first things you were writing about it
1: To be honest my first day at good food i had absolutely no idea how i was going to write about anything like i was just so nervous because you know i feel like at the time and even now so much of food writing is thought of as a very high let's say you know as something that is the preserve of a few And people who have the right language, who obviously have the right taste, the right connections, go to the right restaurants. And I wasn't sure I fit into any of that. I mean, I've always loved food, but I've always loved it maybe independent of restaurants as much as I love eating out. Um, It's also just about food for its own sake and, and the fact that food allows you to tell stories, which is what drew me to it in the first place, I think. Um, So I really just stumbled in, quite honestly, it was not like I went into it with any particular method in mind, I had already been a journalist. And I just used the lens and and the viewpoint that I'd already had as a journalist, and I just applied it to food writing, which is exactly what I came to do, even to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I just demystified that world for myself, and uh, felt really passionate about doing that for other people as well so yeah that's where that's how i got here
0: oh wow so you could combine journalism with food and there you go food journalism
1: yeah pretty cool
0: and uh were you um like reading any like food like uh food journal food journalism when you first started would you have any inspiration like anyone who inspired you to do this
1: yeah of course i think Mm -hmm. i mean I think it was only after I started, and I'll be honest, like it was only after I started writing in about food and I became involved with food on a day to day basis, thinking about it, you know, writing about it. Uh, It was only after that, that I actually began to think about it seriously as a discipline, because for many, many years before that, I had been a reporter in Bombay. I was a features reporter. I was writing stories about the city. And I think that I, you know, um, I hadn't thought that, oh, one day I'm going to be a food writer. So I better think about what, how I'm going to study, it, you know, and the study has actually been super organic. Um, I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that Anthony Bourdain inspired me, but honestly, <laughs> um, that didn't happen until much later. And I'm, I'd love to tell you the story um, when I did actually meet him in Sri Lanka many, many years later. But yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> but that didn't it was not like I started off with this idea that I was gonna do any of what he's doing or that I was inspired by, you know what um, what he was saying. It's it was basically just curiosity that led me to where I am. I mean, there are some great books that that you can read, and there's of course amazing literature out there. There are people who have written wonderful things about food journalism, but so much of what I know. Has purely been curiosity and has purely been, yeah, I guess you know, just digging, right? And just, just exploring and persisting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems absolutely. like you just
0: explored and it was something you were interested in, fell in love, and yeah. you kept exploring. Um, I mean, uh, on the top of Anthony Bourdain that you brought up, um, I uh, I do really love his show and I love how he travels the world. I love that. I get uh, watch his show and see like the different cultures and the different countries, but then also see the different food. I feel like I get so much out of it. Um, what was, uh, yeah, you said you were inspired by him. What, and how was that being inspired by him? And then you said you finally got to meet him. Uh, what is that story?
1: So um, in 2014, uh, my husband and I, who, who met, he met in Bombay. We lived in Bombay, like pretty much, half of our adult lives. And then we decided to move to Sri Lanka, which was a very, very interesting experience. I lived there for five years. Um, But it was also the time when I really established myself as a freelance food writer, which is something that I had been, which I was clear that I wanted to do uh, at some point because I just really needed to find my voice, I think, as a writer, as somebody who was engaging with food outside of a publication. And I wanted to do that. So I moved there, and I kind of began to write very extensively about Sri Lankan food and culture because, quite honestly, it was a way for me to understand um, what I was experiencing. And writing has always been the way that I work out everything that I'm going through in my in my actual life, you know. And I was in a new country where I didn't know anybody, I didn't have any friends, and it was all completely new. So it was food writing was a way for me to. Was a channel for me to understand the newness of this adventure that we had embarked on um, and in that process i think a few years into it um, i guess by the time i had be- i had made a name for myself because i had been writing for a lot of international publications I'd um, i had been writing for roads and kingdoms i had been writing for server and a whole bunch of publications so i think uh, Tony Bourdain's producers had read some of my work and they were going to shoot a season of Parts Unknown in Sri Lanka that would be his last season um, wow. and they got in touch with me and they were like you know they wanted, they wanted me to weigh in on the episode in terms of food just because I'd been writing so much about it um, and then I kind of was a consultant on the show in terms of bouncing ideas off of them you know editorially just giving them suggestions on where to go. And in that process, I actually got to meet him. Uh, I, I interviewed him, actually. Um, I was supposed to kind of meet him and be on the show as well. But unfortunately, he felt sick and that couldn't happen. But I think for me, it was so much more to be able to interview him. And I think that was when I finally kind of, I think, you know, when you've been reading the profiles and when somebody is so well known, you really don't know how much of it is tangible how much of it is real (laughs) how much is constructed like you just don't know and and I think it was in that moment and in those you know in that hour that I spent interviewing him that I that it all began to make sense in some way and um And for me, I mean, it was a great opportunity because I challenged him. I was like, you know, I and it really helped that I was not a fan. Like I was not a fangirl at that point at all. (laughs) So it really helped that I was just able to say, hey, you know, you get to kind of travel the world and do this job that most other people would kill for. And but, you know, what about your privilege? I mean, and you are a very privileged person. And, you know, it was nice that he was able to, he enjoyed the challenge, I suppose. And he was like, I mean, he was completely aware of his privilege and completely aware of the fact that he had this opportunity because he had the backing of a major network. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also, I mean, the fact that he passed just a few months after that also had a very profound impact on me in terms of being able to finally maybe see what he represented and what, like, I think when you're on this side of things when you're the one doing the writing you don't always think about the reader or you don't at least you don't get a sense of what you're writing or what you're presenting may mean to somebody who's consuming it and I think that it gave me the opportunity the unique opportunity maybe of being able to do both things you know of both being the interviewer and being able and being the reader or the viewer in some sense Mm -hmm. you know understanding what his way of showing of 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 navigating the world actually truly meant you know for so many people who may never who may never be able to go to those places but obviously he gave them the license to dream about doing that
0: right
2: honestly I think he deserves it because he actually you know he he worked hard uh, I think and he fought for his chance and got it right is that now how he became the privileged person he is or was I'm not sure is that how did he Um, become Anthony Bourdain
1: no I think look I mean we have to talk about the fact that he was a white man and he was a chef he had written a best-selling book and yes he fought his demons and he fought them very publicly but that doesn't mean that institutionally he I mean if this was a black woman let's say or a brown woman i mean you know somebody from from south asia let's say who was who probably had a similar journey and had a similar voice and had a similar skill talent whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. you know the institutions that allowed him to get to ascend to that level of fame um they may not have they may or may not have enabled somebody who is a very different you know who was who is a person of color in quite the same way. and and I think that that's why it's important for us to always talk about privilege and something that we especially do, and especially for me is something of great interest professionally, but also in just what I do, because I think getting the chance to tell our own stories and our own voices without any interlocutors, that's very, very important. And that's what that's what I aspire to do.
2: Yeah, but there are black women who are famous for being chefs. Other than, you know, it's it's. I don't think it's white privilege or anything to do with that.
1: There are black women who who are famous chefs. But if you look yeah. at the absolute numbers, they are not anywhere comparable. And having been steeped in the dining, in the food scene. I mean, I it's not like I have an extensive knowledge of the United States or, or yeah. the, you know, culinary the culture there.
2: So this but... is the beauty of this podcast. We can Google it. yeah but
1: you know the the numbers are nowhere comparable I mean and just in terms of the the kind of systematic barriers that we have to face and I can talk to my experience like you know especially as an Indian I can tell you that I have enjoyed a great deal of privilege because I because of caste and because caste is such a big issue and it's such an important way I mean in the modern day, a lot of people like to think that it's not relevant, but it continues to be relevant at every level. And I am I'm deeply privileged because of that. And it's something that I only actually fully came to terms with, you know, a few years ago, because these are not the kind of conversations we were having back when we were growing up, even though we should have. But um, I have had the enormous privilege of, of, of caste, of caste privilege, but I also know that for a woman like to just be able to do what I'm doing now um, where I'm in the position of, um, of curating stories from our part of the world for an American or a major international media company and to be able to do that with complete freedom and to be able to say that these stories are important. I mean, you know, for me, um, back when I was a freelancer, one of the things that used to frustrate me so much is that if I was pitching a story from Sri Lanka, you know, and I was pitching a food story from Sri Lanka, there may be two or three stories in a year that I get to do that are from about this part of the world that is hugely complex that has such an interesting layered history. Because, you know, right. it's that's the quota, that's the quota that you assign for South Asia, like, oh, we've had our one Indian story for the year, we've had our one Sri Lanka story for the year. And now I get to be in a position where I'm like, no, we have like, dozens and dozens of stories from this part of the world, and mm-hmm. we deserve to tell it. And I think to be able to get to this position is not something that is easily possible for most yes. people, you know, and, it takes and that's hard what I work. mean that, mm-hmm.
2: I assume it takes hard work <laughs> and dedication to get right. there. Therefore, you deserve this privilege because you worked
0: hard for it.
1: I don't think it's the same thing. Mm. It cannot be. No, it's, it's
0: not. It's the no. the channels. I don't think they're they're like like now. You have the internet. I Anyone this, can post anything. This is pretty like yeah. Much, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Back in the day,
0: years ago, a few people were controlling, and there were only a few people that got selected. Absolutely. So it wasn't as democratic. As it was now. And
1: there was no Netflix, there were no there were not so many people producing shows. There was not so much money being pumped into shows where people get to travel the world. I mean, if there was, then there would be so many other Bourdains, right? <laughs> there was only one. And it's not I just I can think of I
0: can make up a few. Uh who, who can you think of? Yeah, exactly. The
2: travel the world and tasted food. I mean, Gordon Ramsay. They're Ramsey, all white
1: men. I can
0: say no like that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that is a white man. That is a white man. That's true. Like, yeah, Gordon Ramsay. Fair, enough. Fair <laughs> enough. that's true. Mm-hmm. No, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: What wasn't there? What was that? I mean, I, that remember, was... I
1: remember. I remember watching Discovery Channel, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: They were like. You know, you watch Discovery Channel and as much as you loved all the shows that these guys get to go to these places, and a lot of them are super personable, really interesting. And I think that even before I got to know who Boden was, I was already watching watching these guys and al- already I was like, okay, this is really interesting. And that's why I want to be a travel writer. I mean, mm-hmm. who doesn't want to be a travel writer is the other question. But, true.
2: Um, <laughs> but Very true.
1: I don't... I don't remember. I mean the majority of whom what we were watching were white men who got to, you know, do do live the life that we've all dreamt of or or go to these places as sponsored by a company or a channel or a network. So I mean, I think things are definitely changing now. And I'm not gonna debate the fact that things are different now and that there's more access for people. Um, and there's and and I suppose that there there are the opportunities for If you have the talent and if you're lucky, if you work hard, et cetera, et cetera, there are more channels for, for your work or for you to find your way to an audience, let's say, but that was definitely not the case a few years ago.
2: So I look back and dread on the past when the future is bright and full of promises.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, it's true. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the thing with YouTube and stuff like that too, is that um, anyone in any part of the world can, you know. Make their own content and travel around the world, and um, pretty much, it, you know, it's it's that it is pretty cool that I mean, as long as you're good and talented and hardworking and stuff, you really can, um, can do anything. Of course, there's like more systematic uh, things where people get pushed yeah. more forward, right, based on their background. Um,
1: for sure, I think hmm. it depends on what kind of storytelling you're talking about, it depends on. I mean it depends on a lot of things and and I don't I mean this is not to I don't want to keep like you know it's not like I want to be the privileged police in any way but also (laughs) like I think it's I think (laughs) but I think my job also like as a journalist also forces me to question Mm -hmm. the fact that we think that these things come easily or that they are easy Mm -hmm. but they aren't you know and the ability to tell a story yes anybody with A microphone and an internet connection can do that but you know that you're still talking about especially in a country like India, you're still not talking to the majority of the people who who, you know we we are not like I think it's very easy to believe that because it's easy for a few of us to be able to access these things that that's the way the world is but the world is unequal and you know Mm -hmm. And yeah. access to these things is, and so it's important to always keep that questioning framework in mind, but not necessarily always kind of dwell on it, I think. All
0: right. So uh, from your experiences traveling, uh, like around the world in South uh, South Asia, um, first off, for me, the, like, the term South Asia a little bit uh, triggers me a little bit, because it's like, I know that South Asia is so huge. <laughs> and there's so many different cultures yeah. and Why stuff like that. Why does it trigger you? Because when someone's like, "Yeah, I look, I got this uh, little spice from South Asia," I'm like, "What do you mean South Asia?" <laughs> it's like, uh, is it "You from want to or is be it specific?" There? I yeah, I sure, why not? So, it's, yeah. it's, it's a it's a little weird, man. It's like saying all of Arabia or saying you know the Middle East or saying uh, that like wouldn't East trigger Asia. me if someone said that. Um, like
2: all of Arabia, I would be like, "Yeah, cool,
0: all right." But. <laughs> In Terms of right, okay. I got the spice from like turmeric, for example. This came from uh, whatever part of the they say that it came from the east, <laughs> you know. And it's like, okay, well, technically but technically yeah. speaking, it did right, but technically speaking, it's not all of the east. Russia is part of the east, China is part of the east, and you really have to break like uh, I like there's so like even just within the, the small uh, uh. Like South Asian countries, you know, all around, there's so many, they're so different, Danny. They're literally so different. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So, like, for you to put them all in, like, yeah, this is just one monolith. Honestly, I mean, the whole world if is a monolith. If I'm being honest, point.
2: the only difference I see in South Asia is India and Sri Lanka and the surrounding countries because their foods are kind of similar. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, are they not?
1: Mm. <laughs> okay, this is a really good question. South Asia is tremendously diverse and you have a very, very strong point when you say that people use it in a lazy way to define a really broad geographical, cultural, geopolitical, cultural area. And each country, I mean, Pakistan, there are regional cuisines in Pakistan that I have no idea about having, even though India and Pakistan were technically one country until 1947. Um there are parts of India the the cuisine there's absolutely no likeness whatsoever to the north, North Indian cuisine, which passes off as Indian food in most parts of the world. South, South Indian food is tremendously diverse. It's similar to Sri Lankan in some ways, but Sri Lankan food is extremely different in its own way. The Maldives is its own thing then you have bangladesh which is also super unique so i think that a good way of thinking about south asia is that yes it's most definitely a term that is used because it's easy to classify this this region of the world i don't take a huge amount of offense with to it but that's also because i have i have the, the luxury of being able to actually engage with each of these cultures Um, through the course of what I do and therefore I know how they're distinct from each other and and the fact that we have a space where we can represent stories from this part of the world allows me to say South Asia while knowing that I know the granular difference between each of these places Um, but having said that there definitely is a laziness to how South Asia or how these countries are represented, particularly in the Western media. I'll give you a very good example. Um, Sri Lanka has been going through such turmoil for the last few months, um, as I'm sure you know, because of the political situation. And um, because I lived there for five years, I also follow Sri Lankan news very closely. And I think some of so much of the frustration with, you know, activists and journalists I know in Sri Lanka is that is with parachute journalism where you have a Western, like you have somebody from the NYT or somebody from the Guardian or some any major news outlet, right? right? Virtually every news outlet was in Sri Lanka for the last two months because until the last precedent was thrown out, like everybody was so interested in what was gonna happen. Um, virtually everybody is kind of, it's almost like you parachute in and you get a super basic understanding of what's happening and and there are complete and there are inaccuracies in what you actually put out in the world you know like um there i mean it could just be a matter of phrasing but you know um it could the phrasing makes it seem like makes it seem, like for instance you know there was there was i remember this there was something about the former prime minister Mahindra who who was who left who was forced to leave by the people, but there was this you know there was a casual throwaway phrase that he um, was forced to flee because protesters threatened to you know because protesters ran his house and you know whatever ransacked it and etc cetera, et cetera and and the fact is that the protests have been largely peaceful, but the mm-hmm. fact is if you do not understand the nuance of what's happening on the ground because you' just not spent sufficient time getting to know the place that you're reporting about. Or because you have a cursory understanding of it. It's just one of so many countries that you cover from the outside. But
0: yeah. Could You um, mind giving us like a, a bit more context into the situation? I'm not too familiar. I know there were things going okay. on in Lanka and the president, but you can help us with the context here. Yeah.
1: Sure. Um, so, I mean, I'll have to kind of go back a little way because... Um, The beginning of this year, it became clear that Sri Lanka was headed into an economic crisis, which is Mm -hmm. still ongoing and unfolding. Um, This is because of a a multitude of things, but uh, including the fact that COVID-19 led to a big shrink in tourism revenues, which is a very important source of money for Sri Lanka as a small island country, Um, but also... You know, because of the corruption of the ruling family, that uh, the Rajapaksas uh, called the Rajapaksa regime, because uh, the president and the prime minister brothers and and their other brothers and nephews and nephews were also part of this of this ruling government. Um, because of overwhelming corruption on their end, the, the Sri Lanka faced and continues to face a forex crisis. Uh, whereby all many sources of revenue and foreign exchange dried up and citizens were plunged into m- day-long power cuts, 13 hours, 14-hour power cuts. Um, wow. They face, yeah. they face huge difficulties with fuel. At the moment, fuel is the very, very big problem. I was there, I was in Sri Lanka like last week and... Uh, It's just the capital is just full of people waiting in queue for fuel, which only arrives once in a few days. I mean, not even a few days, I want to say a couple of weeks because they just don't have the money to pay for any fuel imports. So it's just basically people waiting in line in their tuk tuks or people who have left their cars there and gone home and come back two days later to see that the queue hasn't moved at all. So there was barely any (laughs) public transport on the road when I was there. Uh, It was impossible to get cabs, impossible to get tuk-tuk. So um, as a result of this, public dissent began growing against this government and against specifically these brothers who were seen as being the architects of the downfall of this country. So to cut a very long story short, people were protesting publicly. They, They peacefully occupied a protest site, which is right next to the presidential secretariat in the capital and on the 9th of July, um, there was a huge outpouring of people that basically marched to the president's house and he was forced to flee the country. He's currently in Singapore. He fled the country and he resigned after he fled the country. They have a new president at the time being. Um, but all of this meant that there was so much going on, the undertones of which could be interpreted in a variety of ways. It's very complex as you as mm. you may well imagine. Right. This was a citizens movement uh, as somebody called it, it was a hydra headed movement, there was no leader, there were multiple people who were leading the charge um, but it's so easy to be on the outside when you're not from the region, not familiar with the country to come in and to say this is what I see and this is what like you know uh, people and, and I think the choice of words is so pivotal here because you are representing this part of the world to the world at large you know and um and I think that's where the irritation comes like you know Sri Lanka is not India India is not Pakistan Pakistan right. is not Bangladesh we are all different countries and we have and and I think that making it seem like it is all one thing is damaging in that way
0: it uh, sounds a lot like what's happening in Lebanon too I mean I'm from Lebanon and I with the whole inflation and, um, the people rising against, uh, the government and activists and, you know, people just no fuel, no electricity. Um, it's a challenging time for like this post COVID world really is, uh, a very weird and strange world. And, um, you know, what is like, um, so, you know, and you're still traveling, you're still doing the food journalism. Um, so I want to ask you like, uh, when, uh, with all this chaos happening and such, uh, like, uh, do you think food journalism plays um, like a bigger role for people in entertainment, or um, or uh, do you would or do you focus more on um, political journalism or stuff like that in this meantime?
1: Um, I am not a political journalist. I am hmm. definitely interested in politics. Um, I'm interested in journalism at large, but I'm definitely not. And for me, I think one of the joys of my job is that it allows me to curate meaningful storytelling that has an Im- that, that I mean I, I don't want to say that that you can you know quantify the impact that anything has because quite honestly, I don't subscribe to that notion. I feel like every story has its value, whether or not hmm. you're doing impact journalism. Um, but, um, but I feel like, you know, like, for instance, just to give you an example, we launched this magazine called Rasa in May this year. And one of the stories in the inaugural issue was was actually a food story. It was about milk powder, and why it's so important in Sri Lanka, because it's used to make tea and, it, um, you know, it's it's widely used in place of fresh milk, which is a, considered a luxury. And And the writer found a really great way of linking that to the, you know, linking the fact that milk powder is so integral to the tea culture, it's so integral to a social, you know, the way people socialize almost in Sri Lanka. And she connected that to the current shortages, which have made made milk powder super expensive. Mm -hmm. But she was also reflecting on the Sri Lanka's dairy industry, which was thriving once upon a time. And what all of that means to the, cu- to the country in its current moment. And I thought it was such a clever and not just clever, but also unexpected way to talk about something that's happening in the world right now, which is relevant, but by, to- by taking a completely different approach to it. And you're talking about milk powder. Nobody would think that the Sri Lanka story can be told through milk powder. And yet we were doing exactly the same thing. And, um, and that for me is the great joy of what I do, you know, and that's what makes it relevant. No matter what world we live in, COVID or no COVID, there's bound to be, because we have to eat to live, there are bound to be stories that we have to tell about our condition as it is and how about our world as we see it and perceive it in the current moment, um, which makes food journalism, in my opinion, completely timeless.
0: Wow. I see. It's like so specific Very well that it's said. that it's like timeless, right?
1: Yeah.
0: How interesting. World yeah. Of f- <laughs> the world of food I journalism. Mean, yeah.
2: When it comes to food journalism, uh, I uh, really want to ask: Are you allowed to have a favorite cuisine, or is it, <laughs> is it, you got to be non-biased with of every course. food you eat?
1: I mean, come on! I
2: I I could kill for some Indian food right now.
1: uh, Of course, I have favorites, and of course, like you know, I mean, if I was doing a review, I would Mm -hmm. expect that I shouldn't go in with a very strong notion of disliking the cuisine that Mm -hmm. I'm going to review. But I don't do reviews very often, anyway. I mean that, but I think that is important. Like, you need Mm -hmm. to go into a review with an open mind towards what you're eating and you shouldn't go in there thinking Ugh, like i don't want to eat this and then okay. saying that you're doing an objective re- review that would be a bit ridiculous but of course you're allowed to have favorites i mean i love peruvian japanese um, oh i don't
2: like japanese I do a lot
1: of it oh really
2: <laughs> i really don't like I japanese love... food no offense to japanese people obviously, <laughs>
1: okay.
2: but i'm not a fan of sushi i love ramen ramen's good and and that and, yeah. and, was uh, really on. good. Yeah. Wow. And what else do they have? There's uh, what was that food? Uh, their curries are amazing. They have a
1: whole bunch of things. Yeah. I
2: cannot deal with sushi. I don't like sushi. I hate it. I hate sushi. Yeah,
1: but, but it I mean, it doesn't mean that you hate.
2: It doesn't mean that I hate Japanese hate. food. I mean true. Yeah. yeah
1: you just true. you just told me a whole bunch of things that you actually like about <laughs> Japanese food. So.
2: I mean I kind of like ramen? <laughs> kind of. Oh, okay. <laughs> Curries are good regardless of where they're from. As long as it's a curry, yeah, okay. I'm good with it, you know? Okay. But when we go to specific like when I say Japanese food to anyone, first thing that comes up to mind is sushi, obviously. Right?
1: Yeah.
2: So so yeah, and I I don't like sushi. Well, what's your favorite cuisine of all time other than like wait, no. You said I think you said Japanese Peruvian, right?
1: Yeah, Peruvian might be among my top favorites. I absolutely, Peruvian, Japanese, yeah. I mean, I just love that combination. I'm sorry, but I really do love raw fish in sushi and ceviche and tiradito and all of those things. So, Um, but other than that, I also, I mean, I cook a lot of Indian food because I grew up, I mean, you know, that's the cuisine that's most familiar. I, I cook it almost every day. I, I have grown to love Sri Lankan food over the years because it's, it's a country that's very, very close to my heart. And having lived there for five years, it's strange how I actually crave very specific Sri Lankan foods now that I no longer live in the country. And um, I do have access to it in Dubai, but not as good as in Sri Lanka. Mm. Um, but let's see what else I like. Gosh, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank here. Because I think it's just because I eat. I'm so agnostic when it comes to food. Like, I am mm. I have specific tastes. But also, I'm just open to a lot of, like... I mean, I, I may be committing some kind of blasphemy here. But I do not like any fast food. Like, I don't like McDonald's. I don't <laughs> care for KFC. Neither do I.
2: Uh, KFC, kind of. But, you know other than that i mean they make
1: good fries and they soft and mcdonald's softies are occasionally really nice like when you want something like you know when i think i mean i think i have to a lot of friends have made this point to me and my husband's a huge mcdonald's fan so um uh, they made this point to me that no matter where you go in the world mcdonald's always tastes the same and and that there's that sense of which is also kind of not true because, not you know, it, it tastes Coming very from- different in <laughs> yes. different places.
2: Mm-hmm. Been around. Um, so i no been so
1: I've
0: different McDonald's. Not the same. <laughs> not um, the same. Like uh, in Kuwait and stuff, I remember that like McDonald's, we used to go and it used to, like, used to be a fun thing for the family and there was like a playhouse and it was really yummy food. Maybe it was just my memory. But now that I live in the United States, McDonald's is such like you buy a $2 burger and it's It's a much grosser feeling and experience than it was when... May or may not cause cancer. (laughs) When I lived in Kuwait, it was such a luxury treat, you know? I tried McDonald's in Spain, (laughs) in
2: Italy, in London, in the United States, in Jordan, and uh, Bahrain. Where else? United Emirates uh, and Kuwait. Obviously, Kuwait takes it home. That's just because (laughs) Mm. we are the Arabian food capital, half the plex. I really do. But, uh, other than that, they don't taste the same at all. I think the worst was Spain. No, yeah, Spain. Spanish McDonald's is just so bad. Describe it for us. <laughs> what was, why was it so bad? <laughs> okay, grab two sa- buns of a sandwich. Mm-hmm. Grab oil. <laughs>
0: eat
2: that. That's exactly oh. what it is. It's too much. Mm-hmm. But uh, my what? so yeah, go ahead.
1: No sorry I didn't want to interrupt but I didn't want to forget that ahead, I, yeah. after eating a lot of Lebanese in Dubai mm-hmm. eating Lebanese food in Lebanon was such a revelation.
0: Something like,
1: else. I was just like I because you know I've, I mean even though there's so many Lebanese options here I find that they're all a little bit one note like you know, everything tastes the same. Mm-hmm. and Everything is super sharp, like acidic. And then I went to Lebanon and I wow. tried the Armenian food. I tried the Lebanese food. I ate really, really well for two weeks. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. Like I it was like suddenly remembering why I love it so much. And um, that is definitely among my top. Lebanese
0: food
2: is really good. Lebanese food yeah. is really. Good. Oh, For so me,
1: good.
2: if I had to do my top three or top four, yeah. it would be Indian, uh, Persian food, Italian, and then Kuwaiti food. <laughs>
0: That's how <laughs> I go. Italian's really good too. Persian is yeah.
1: an interesting one. Um, Persian is so good. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. I love Persian food as well. Yep. So, yeah, I think I'm the wrong person to ask this off. <laughs> like, I just, you know, I, yeah. I'm i agnostic in that I, mm-hmm. like, I mean, um, if it was a super meat-heavy cuisine, then maybe I would, like, meat and, like, you know, although I love steak and I, like, you know, Japan, again, if you love steak, like, the best, the best beef anywhere in the world.
2: Wagyu um, beef goes a long way. Yeah, Right
1: a very long way like <laughs> so long oh my gosh like that's mm-hmm. my predominant memory so strange from japan was like going to this uh restaurant that just does steak nothing else just small pieces of wagyu which they do but, you know on the but grill. i don't
2: know why but for me if i see a restaurant that's like how I explain this? A restaurant that has two or three items on the menu, I feel more comfortable in that restaurant, knowing that. Absolutely, I agree. It's just, <laughs> it's just th- those those three things that are one or two things that they do, so they won't get it wrong. If that's you know,
1: yeah, multi cuisine restaurants are usually a disappointment.
2: Yeah, I don't uh, go to
1: usually those. they are just as they are just a mediocre approximation of everything that they claim to serve. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule, but in my opinion, like a long menu with many options usually for me is like is not a very exciting prospect
0: it really isn't so uh what is uh, i want to ask you what are some things that you look for in finding a restaurant like how am i supposed to know uh is it the reviews you find or is it the ratings or is it the word of mouth or is it the, the menu like you're describing like what's something you look for uh, or I should look for if I'm trying to like go to South Asia and go to eat some place?
1: You know, in a place like South Asia, you should... Word of mouth actually really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that some of the best recommendations I've got for places um, in India, even places I haven't been to have been from friends who live there or like... Uh, usually on Twitter, somebody starts a thread saying these are my favorites. And usually there are like five there that are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to give you a tip for if and when you are in South Asia and you want to experience, let's say, really good street food. There are people who who conduct professional street food walks and they're very good. And, you know, and those are always, but like, let's say in Vietnam, where they say that the best way to find out is the longest lines um, at the stall, like Uh when you're in Vietnam, you know, the stall with the longest line and the highest turnover is likely to be the one that does the best food because um, the, you know, especially also stalls that run like, that run for a very short period of time in the day that shut by 11, you know, I mean, some of it is laziness, yes, but a lot of it is because (laughs) Because, you know, you're just not selling stuff the whole day and you prefer to like sell stuff fresh and then you prefer to pack up and go home. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are lots of tips to find these. I mean, this is not restaurants. Restaurants, honestly, it's a mix of everything. It's what your friends say. It's what you read. It's what you experience. It's a, It's a bunch of different things. And ultimately, you just have to try a lot of stuff and then you know what works for you and what doesn't. But in general um for me I prefer especially in Dubai and because I live here at the moment I would much rather go to a a local restaurant that has a really good name for serving authentic something even if it's one thing rather than going to the really big name or the big chef restaurants I mean of course there is a time and place to do that and of course for celebrations or when you know like I, it's not like I don't go to the fancy places, but I'd much rather go to, like there's an Iraqi place that serves masgouf that I've been planning to go to for the longest time and I haven't been able to, um, and that those are the sort of things that would make my list, or the bakery that has been making Iranian bread for X mm. number of years, you know, like <laughs> that's go. the stuff that I'd go for. Let's go. Oh my god! What I really want. <laughs> yeah.
2: Wow. So I think our, our last question would be what's the future looking like for you?
1: Mm that's a that's an interesting one. Um personally I'm not sure how many more years we have in Dubai because you know uh we move every few years and that is part of the it's both exciting and a little bit terrifying always because you know uh it's a whole new place to get used to but for the moment, I'm really enjoying being here because I feel like there are lots of stories that are not been told about Dubai, um, mm-hmm. especially stories which uh, are not focused on restaurants, not focused on glamour, but focused on on real life and people and the communities that call this place home. So I'm really excited to be here, at least for however long I'm here. Um, and professionally, of course, I'm really, I'm very excited to have this opportunity to you know be at the helm of this magazine because it's really such a great way to engage with the part of the world that I know best and also to do it authentically and not have to perform it for a western audience I think that is a huge opportunity and a huge privilege to come back to that word I'm really excited to have it and to see where that goes.
0: Thank you very much for your time I'm really hungry right now.
1: Thank you so much. (laughs) So (laughs) much. honestly yeah exactly. (laughs)
2: Uh, Thank you very much for your time. time. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you so See much for you. watching into the show. If you guys enjoyed this episode half as much as we enjoyed filming it for Bam. you, please like, subscribe, and share. Like, subscribe. Uh, yeah. We'll leave a link to <laughs> uh, Vida's uh, stuff on the description below her Instagram, uh, her website, all those different stuff. Uh, Vida, is there anything you'd like to shout out or let the world know?
1: Sorry. Uh... I'm sorry, yeah, I didn't get that last bit. Oh, I
2: said, would you like to shout out or let the world know anything?
1: No, I think that's fine. They can find me. You can find me on Instagram. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. Uh, you can pitch me stories. Wow. Um, you can write to me. Um, you can find me. All my details will be provided. But please feel free to reach out. And it's been a Thank pleasure to much. talk to both of you. Thank it's you so much. It's been a
2: pleasure talking a pleasure to ours. you from our family tours. To Peace, love, and happiness. And we'll see, you. see you later.
1: Thank you.